0: The following podcast contains content of a highly graphic nature. Listener discretion is advised. The material covered is based on first hand accounts and publicly available information. In producing this podcast, every effort has been made to show respect to the victims and their families. Support for this episode comes from the country's leading mapping technology and services provider, Esri Australia. To learn more about how Esri Tech is making a difference in crime analysis and public safety, head to Esri Australia. That's E-S-R-I Australia.com.au slash crime. I'm Tori Shepherd, and this is Mapping Evil with Mike King.
1: So sadistic and so sick. It's chilling.
0: The podcast that investigates the geography of
1: crime. Predators roaming our highways and our byways. This was a big, white, international truck. And this deranged human being welded bars in the back of that sleeper berth inside of there, and he put hooks and other things that he could use all kinds of bondage paraphernalia on. And he would use this as a way to chain, to keep control of, and to punish his victims. He fits the terminology of serial sexual sadist to a T.
0: Episode 1, The Root of All Evil. As a journalist with a keen interest in the dark side of humanity, I can't wait to delve into The Root of All Evil with you. As we uncover the untold stories behind true crimes from both America and cold cases in Australia, with the help of criminal investigator royalty, Mike King. Mike has been catching killers, tracking down serial predators and busting cruel cults for over three decades. He was trained by FBI profilers and has gone on to use geographic information systems, data and mapping technology to become a world-leading investigator, not to mention a famous author and a YouTube superstar. Mike, before we get into how geography can link predators and their victims and help bust cold cases, let's start by looking at the cold facts of past murders on our highways.
1: It's chilling, actually, to think about predators like the ones we're going to talk about and that the fact that they're out roaming our highways and our byways.
0: Today we're going to talk about the truck stop killer.
1: This case really intrigued me from the very beginning from a number of avenues. I think I first heard about this particular killer while I was sitting in a serial killer class in the auditorium at the FBI Academy. I was there with investigators from all over the United States who were handling these kinds of cases. It really became a case that intrigued me. In fact, I uh, taught this class for many years after using this very case that we're going to talk about as an example, because it really walks through many of the behaviors that we see in other predatory kinds of serial cases. But most importantly, Tori, the thing that really impacted me about this case is it eventually landed in my home state of Utah and ended up with a case that, in fact, the very last case that this individual was captured on, the body was dumped in my state.
0: And we will get all the way to that horrible finale, but stay with us for now. We're about to dig into Mike's brain to hear about this case that he worked on and then to also get his intel on an Australian cold case. So... Mike, before we meet the truck stop killer, not a lot of traveling happening lately. Can you take us on a quick journey to Texas, Illinois, Utah? What are these states like? I'm picturing long highways, deserts, mountain in the distance. What what are these states like? Are they similar?
1: Well, the thing that's really interesting is they're, they're very diverse and it makes me think a lot of Australia and, and the many different ecosystems that I've been in as I've traveled your country. For instance, uh, Texas and Arizona are very dry and arid, huge areas where there is nothing but desert and cactus and just very uh, light brush in the countryside. It's hot. It's near the Mexican border. It just really is a unique, beautiful place, and yet it's also butted up against by the Gulf so there's a high humidity down there and so you have desert where there's relatively no humidity and then near the ocean the humidity is just stifling at times but as you move up into and i'm going to end with utah as you move up into illinois it becomes just this incredibly lush environment it's green folks don't need to put out sprinkling systems in their yards to keep things green it just rains nearly every day and the humidity is so high it reminds me a lot of when i was up in the northern territories and some of the the really lush areas that i saw up there but then you get to utah and of course i i live in utah and i love utah but it reminds me so much when you get down into the red rock area of utah where zion national park is and arches national monuments and those areas it reminds me so much of going out to Uluru and and uh, when I was there and uh, walking around near Ayers Rock I just felt like I was at home so it really is akin to being in your country
0: oh that beautiful ochre I love it now Robert Ben Rhodes the truck stop killer one of the striking things about this guy was his truck so his a sexual sadist, and he built himself, what I read in the paper was described as a travelling torture chamber.
1: This was a an 18-wheeler, we call him here in the States. This was a big, white, international truck. It had those, if you can kind of uh, envision this, this big square-nosed cab that just went from the ground straight up and right behind the front seats was what is called a sleeper berth and and it's a place where the truck driver can pull over on their long-haul routes and they can climb in the back and there's a bed back there and they can sleep and then get right back on the road again well this deranged human being took that one step further and he actually welded bars in the back of that sleeper berth inside of there and he put hooks and other things that he could use all kinds of bondage paraphernalia on And he would use this as a way to chain, to keep control of and to punish his victims. He he was a terribly sick human being.
0: The scale of Rhodes' crime, he was so prolific, we're not even going to be able to go into all of his attacks. In fact, they don't even think they've pinned down all of his attacks. And you can tell us a bit about how they think there may be even more that we don't know about. Could you talk us through his modus operandi? Did I say that right?
1: Yeah, so I love that because this thing called modus operandi is the kinds of things that an offender does in order to be successful. And they learn, like all of us learn. We perfect whatever our trade is, and when we have a mistake, we fix it. Well, these predators are no different, and he had created a system of doing things that seemed to work well for him. In fact, on one of his victims, he actually told them, I've been doing this for 15 years, as he chained this woman to the inside of his cab and began to sexually assault her. This particular individual was what I would call an opportunistic killer. He would uh, drive the highways and byways and he would look for people that were broken down in their vehicle in need of assistance. And he would offer assistance if it was a single female. Uh, And sometimes he took couples, but he would quickly execute whoever the man was in the couple but he would be that person who rescues him, offers him a ride, and then as soon as he would get him into his vehicle, he would take immediate control, usually by executing the boy, if, if it was a woman traveling with a man, and then take the individual and put him into chains and, and get him into the back of his sleeper berth. Other tactics that he used that were very successful is he would drive down the freeway, and, and as uh, women were passing him in his truck, he was actively taking photographs whenever there was a single woman in a car and we know this because we recovered a large quantity of photographs of single women in cars as he looked down from his you know high position in this truck And as the cars passed him and if he saw someone that he was attracted to he would follow them until he got to a a freeway exit that they took for a truck stop and a a restroom break and uh, when they had gone into the toilet he would then ambush them and take them into his truck that was another way he would get them He took advantage of things like sex trade workers who work out of the truck stops or people involved in drug trafficking and uh, would turn those into his victim. But I think his favorite victim was someone who was hitchhiking on the road. And some of the cases we're going to talk about, Tori, actually focus on how he took a couple of those people who were hitchhiking.
0: Yeah. And I was reading about how women, often prostitutes at truck stops, are called lot lizards.
1: Yeah, isn't that an attractive term? I mean, what kind of a human being even refers to someone like that? And yet that's the exact terminology he used in one interrogation when they talked to him about a woman who had been involved in some sex trade work out of a truck stop, referring to her as, Hey, what's the big deal? She's just a lot lizard. Holy cow, this is a human being, and he somehow can just dehumanize them by calling them something like that.
0: Okay, well, let's get to some specifics. Can you tell us about, I guess, you know, the cases, that the victims and the incidents that really showcased what kind of guy he was?
1: I'm gonna share four cases that happened over four months back to back to show how out of control this particular predator was. And what we've seen is that there's actually a buildup process that occurs with these kinds of predators. And in the beginning, they might be very organized and they take all kinds of precautions. But in this particular case, I think part of the thing that led to him being captured is he started to become disorganized in the way he did things, and he started to act more quickly one event after another. Now, again, he said, I've been doing this for 15 years, so if we took this idea that once a month in the cases we're going to talk to, he took, murdered, and abducted, and and sexually assaulted people every single month that we're aware of, Imagine how many there may have been uh, in this perpetrator's background. But I wanna just go back to January of 1990, when this beautiful woman named Patricia Candace Walsh fell in love with a kid named Douglas Zykowski. I mean, you just can't make up names like this. And these two newlyweds were living up in the northwest of the United States in Seattle, Washington. And they determined that one of the first things that they wanted to do was to become Christian missionaries for that first year of marriage, to go out and just bless the lives of other people and spread the Christian gospel.
0: See, these are really good kids trying to do good in the world.
1: Absolutely. I mean, these are the kids that you're proud of, that, they're, mm. that they care about serving and doing other things. Well, they made, uh, I guess, the only decision they could make, and they decided that they were going to hitchhike from Seattle to Georgia, the deep south in the United States, where I like to call it the Bible Belt, where there's just so much religion discussed and uh, they were gonna go down there and be these missionaries. Well, just outside of a little place in Texas, they're hitchhiking and along comes Robert Ben Rhodes, who pulls over in his truck and he offers them a ride. Uh, They get in, they're grateful, and of course he he, uh, by all accounts was very charismatic when he would welcome people and talk to them. But within a few miles of being inside the cab, and once he's outside of the Houston area, then Rhodes stops and suddenly pulls out a small-caliber weapon. It's called a twenty-five auto, and he uh, shoots Zykowski in the head and dumps his
0: body off in the desert. And how old are these guys, these newlyweds? Yeah, yeah, they're in their
1: 20s, and, and just think about this, Tori. Imagine how terrifying that would be to witness something like that, and then have the person say, now do what I tell you, or you're next. You've just witnessed how committed this sicko is, and now you're faced with a decision. Do I jump out of the car and flee? And I just think, how many people would just be uh, so paralyzed by fear, and immediately he gains control of her?
0: Oh, I often wonder that, whether I would be a, you know, a fleer or a flighter, or I would just be paralyzed by fear. And my... One of my deep fears is that I would be the sort of person who would be paralyzed.
1: And I think that's something that a lot of people experience. And it goes back to some of the things that we try to teach of making decisions now, how you're going to react in certain situations, so that you don't have to think about those processes.
0: She's just seen her brand new husband shot dead, and now he's turned to her and said, you're mine, basically.
1: Correct. Well, very quickly, what he he does with this victim and he did with many others is he has to now change her appearance because if law enforcement's looking for a beautiful, long-haired redhead, he's got to change that. And so he does what he does on most of his victims. He cuts her hair and then he changes the kind of clothing she's in. And he puts her in either clothed or unclothed in the back of the vehicle, but he keeps her for one to two weeks where he sexually assaults, he starves, and he terrorizes this human being until he eventually takes her into a a remote area of Utah, where I live, and uh, he gets her out of the vehicle, shoots her twice in the head. And then one of the disgusting things that this guy did was he would always display the victim in a very exposed way. Uh, He fits the terminology of serial sexual sadist to a T. So that's the first case. Oh,
0: I'm trying to imagine, you know, a big truck thundering down a highway, and inside is a secret torture chamber, and he's kept her in there for one or one or two weeks.
1: Yeah, imagine what that one or two weeks of hell was for that uh, woman. I get so angry when I think about that and think about what kind of an individual would violate someone in that manner. And again, I'm going to just say it again, a serial sexual sadist. So the next one is really interesting. It's a young woman, we're, we're using the name of Nicole Tuttle, and, and this is one month later, and now he's traveling in Southern California. So this is 2,000 miles away from Texas where Zykowski is killed. It's seven or 800 miles from Utah where Candace Walsh has been killed. And a month later, this truck driver who traveled all over the United States very extensively is now in Southern California, and he picks up a hitchhiker named Nicole Tuttle. He chains her and, and assaults her for two weeks in his vehicle. Very similar M.O., modus operandi, as he has with the previous victim that we talked about. And, and actually, I think he was just a little over a week that she was in his custody before she escapes. He's traveling through Houston, Texas, where we later learn he actually lives. And uh, he happens to, for just a moment, leave her unattended and unshackled. And this kid has enough courage to bail out of his truck and take off running down the street with barely a stitch of clothing on and chains hanging off her. Can you imagine the motorist that saw her?
0: Oh, I'm cheering for her right now. You know, I'm imagining it as a horror film. You see someone get away and you're you're gunning for them, but then you're worried that he's going to pull out his gun. So what happens?
1: A motorist thankfully picks her up and immediately takes her to the police station. She offers a description and police miraculously find Rhodes before he can get on a freeway and disappear and they arrest him. They take her over to identify him, and the moment she sees this individual who has been sadistically terrorizing her, she curls up in a ball, says it's not him, and can't testify. And uh, she, she later apologizes, but it's just too much emotionally for her. Well, I can't blame her for that, but imagine she could have stopped things early on if she had been capable of testifying. But in no way am I saying that in a judgmental way, Tori. Uh, again, imagine what the
0: trauma this young woman went through. Exactly. I would be paralyzed by fear. So now let's get to the geographical nub of the matter. So he's a long haul trucker. He's got the freedom of being on the road all the time, the freedom of carrying, I guess, that truck with him that he can hide his victims in. How do you start to think about catching a truck stop killer and working out that pattern on the landscape that he's making? I mean, today, I sort of imagine you'd almost be able to like pick up all the truck's GPSs. But in the 90s, what made him come unstuck?
1: Yeah, well, it was sheer luck on this particular case because, again, think about back then, there's a challenge. We call it the three Cs communication, cooperation, and coordination. It absolutely was not functioning well in law enforcement in the United States. We're much different than Australia. We actually have 18,000 plus police departments in our country. That's 18,000 different police chiefs who all think they have the right answer. It's 18,000 different communication systems and, and records management systems. And so when it comes to sharing information, it was really problematic. What we've seen is kind of a dramatic change for the good in recent years with technology, where we've started to realize that we can share information more readily and create national databases that can help us stem this challenge and and bring it together a little better. Because think about it, in his particular cases, all he had to do is pick up a victim in one jurisdiction, and within a few miles, he could be in an entirely different jurisdiction. And within an hour, he could be in an entirely different state. And each one of those organizations, those jurisdictions, when they have a violent crime, they look at it as a single episode within their jurisdiction. They don't look at it in aggregate across the country. Today, that's much different. We can start to analyze and look at comparative things like the type of victim and and uh, share data in a way that we couldn't back then.
0: Right, but nevertheless, cause I mean, that sounds like a crippling system, After I think the FBI had looked at this and obviously individual police departments had looked at this, it landed in your lap because you're the you're the maps and data guy, right?
1: Yeah, it actually ended up in my lap in a much different way. I was teaching a serial killer class in southern Utah with my investigative companion Greg Cooper, and we had presented this case, and after the discussion, we always invited the investigators to bring cold cases that they were having a difficult time uh, solving. In this particular case, the uh, deputy sheriff, he's this massive man about six foot four and he had this big Stetson cowboy hat on and he brought up his folder and he opened it up and he started showing us images of the victim that they found, the unidentified body that they found in their community. and as we looked at it, the victim was posed in the same way that we saw Rhodes had posed other victims. It was like reading a a very familiar novel and i remember we said if she was shot in the head with a 25 caliber we know who your killer is and the deputy's jaw dropped and uh, within a few weeks we had identified her husband in texas and tied the two cases together and it was actually the last uh, case that uh, rhodes was tried on and uh, he currently sits in prison
0: There you go. And what would you do? I mean, what would you do now if you were reading in the news that there was something like, you know, just women found in all very different places? How would you kind of start mapping out who it might have been who'd done it?
1: So it's interesting because once I uh, started working with Esri, one of the first things I wanted to do was see if we could have sped this up with technology like we have today. And so what we did is we went in and I took all of uh, Robert Ben Rhodes' truck stop records. So every time a trucker goes through a new community, they have to go to a way station and make sure they're paying the proper taxes. And every time he stopped for fuel and every time he stopped to sleep. And we examined all of his locations when he was working. And each of those locations is a point on the map And so by using GIS, we can then start to say, all right, I'm seeing where all the points are on the map. Now, let me start looking at all of the missing people that would fit within this particular killer's preferential victim sphere. And so we can start to plot those. And then what we ended up doing is we said now, based on when they disappeared and based on Rhodes' locations, how many of these victims could he potentially have gotten to taken control of and then made it to the next point on the map where we have a date and time of him getting gas or, or checking in at the way station. Well it was so eye-opening as we looked at this and the numbers started to raise to the surface because now we could use geography and the science of where and bring it together to identify what victims could possibly be tied to this offender and then start to look at those cases individually. So what what we have today is, is just so exciting and so empowering for law enforcement as we look at these massive amounts of data that are out there.
0: You know, in a sense, you've pioneered a new way of pulling out that map, right, so that you can then start to see other victims that might come with it.
1: Yeah, and if they go to the website, they can look at examples of this, we call it link analysis, Tori, where they can look at these relational things based on real people that are still missing today that Rhodes potentially could have victimized. Now, it becomes a fundamental financial decision at some point of how far do you go. Some people suggest that Rhodes was responsible for somewhere between 50 victims And some members at the FBI think 300 victims that fit the profile of preferential victim and the areas that I just described by using GIS. We may never know how many victims this individual had, but once we had him locked away for the rest of his life with no possibility of Parole, then it became more important to just try to identify who those victims are and get those families' closure and then to look at cases that are unsolved right now.
0: Wow. Well, so, look, if you want to go and have a look, that's on mappingevil.com.au. We're going to now talk about an Australian cold case. I think this is a really interesting little switch we're doing here because the Flinders Highway killings, I had this vague memory that there was a serial killer involved. And it turns out that's probably not really the case. So, in a way what we've got is a serial place rather than a serial person like we've got a geographical area where people seem to run into trouble it's like not like the Bermuda Triangle but you know it's a it's a place that tends to be quite dangerous for people so can you give us an idea of Flinders Highway and what happened there?
1: Yeah, I think the thing that was so intriguing to me about the Flinders Highway really was that it, that there are a number of homicides and missing persons cases and I believe some unidentified bodies that have turned up alongside that system or within a distance of the system that has caused people to say, oh no, it's a serial killer on the Flinders Highway. Well,
0: I think they even called it the Highway of Death.
1: If you can attach your crimes in hopes that somebody else might be held accountable for them. That makes it kind of interesting. But um, my experience has been that most of these uh, predators are just not that smart. And they are more interested in just satisfying whatever lust or desire or whatever it is that's driving them at that particular moment. I don't think most of them think that far ahead. So I thought it was kind of interesting to go in first and look at the actual Flinders Highway, and what it does, the cities that it connects to, because it was a connector, an artery, that connected major metropolitan areas in a way that uh, a lot of community and a whole lot of open space was introduced into the framework as we go through. And so we, we have people uh, over into, uh, is it called Townsville? Is that Townsville correct?
0: it is, yeah. So I think, I mean, we're talking 800 kilometres, aren't we? Which is... Well, it's a long stretch, but for, I guess, Americans and Australians, maybe not that long. So yeah, Townsville is a kind of fairly major metropolis.
1: It looks to me like it's got a huge uh, metropolitan population. But then you, you start heading west to Mount Isa. And as we started to map all of these missing persons and homicides, one thing came right to the surface to me that I found interesting. And that was that most of the victims are taken pretty long distance and sometimes, you know, up to the north and and into some pretty remote areas before they're disposed of. Now, the interesting thing as I saw as we got on the coastline, the people attached to the Flinders Highway homicides, man, they extend as far as the Kearneys who are are really far north up by Carnes. I'm just going to
0: say that for you in a Queensland accent. Oh, please do. I'm from South Australia, so I'm going to put on an accent for this. Kearns. Cans. (laughs)
1: No no offense to
0: the Queenslanders (laughs) listening.
1: Cans. (laughs) Well, that's perfect. But, you know, it's strange to me that that individual, Reese Kearney, is tied to the Flinders Highway. I, I don't know exactly why, but many people attributed to this highway system. So as I started to look at it, I started to think maybe it would be better to start looking at the victimology and the victim selection process to determine if you have a single serial killer or maybe there have been multiple serial killers or it could be natural events accidents and this road becomes the boogeyman and the brunt of what this is and maybe they really don't have anything to do with the highway well
0: maybe so let's talk about the victims because when we're talking about the truck stop killer i mean we talked about that mo right now it's basically young women He had a very clear preferred type. Talk us through a couple of the killings on the Flinders Highway because there's there's not a demographic neat little box that they all fit into, is there?
1: No, no. In fact, I I guess there were two buckets that really jumped out at me. The first, and I'm going to use the example of Tony Jones, this uh, 20-year-old backpacker from Perth who decides, and this is like 1982, he decides that he's going to head out with his backpack and he's going to tour Australia into his trip, he suddenly disappears. He just falls completely off the map somewhere between, and I hope I say this right, Antil Plains and Mount Isa. And uh, there were a couple of things that I thought were interesting because he disappears, but there's no additional dings against his bank account. It basically just is never tapped into so you start thinking well could it be robbery well okay i guess he could have been robbed for the you know ten dollars that he probably carried in his backpack you know there's no attempt to look into his banking account but this kid is just wiped from existence, never to be heard from again. Um, Imagine that family and and wondering every time they drive down the street, they're looking at every 20-year-old male and wondering, is that Tony? Is that
0: him? Just not knowing. And I know that the family kind of over the years have talked to the press and talked about rewards and, and possible leads. So yeah, they've never had a chance to grieve properly.
1: Yeah, I, it's it, these cases are so distressing and there are so many victims attached to them. And to those who are listening, who are family members of someone who's missing, please know how our heart aches for you as you try to find some solace in where they are or what's happened. Now, in this particular case, I found it interesting because the police received an anonymous letter and it said, quote, I believe body of A.J. Jones is buried in or near Fullerton Riverbed within 100 yards west south side Flinders Highway and Lockheel.
0: Lockheel, yeah, I think that's a place. That's very specific, isn't it? I mean, that's a, that's a lot of detail. It's not just some crank sort of... Well, I mean, it could well be a crank, right? We don't know. But it's not just, you know, like, oh, I know where he is. He's by the lake. It's very detailed.
1: Yeah. And this is really interesting because law enforcement did exactly what they had to do. You you don't leave a stone unturned. They went out. They searched the area. Uh, they They didn't find anything. I think later even a prisoner claims to have killed a person in that area, but there's no connection that's found. And I wrote myself a little note as I was looking at this I wrote psychic next to me, and I don't. I wonder if the person who sent this note was a psychic. And, and just this weekend, we were assisting law enforcement and family in the search for a missing woman in uh, the state of Colorado. And it, I was shocked at the number of psychics that came out of the woodwork.
0: Now, when you say psychics, I am a massive skeptic, right? <laughs> but are you saying, you, you know, do you believe in psychics?
1: So... I'm going to answer your question by not answering it.
0: How? Question. I like a politician, Mike. <laughs>
1: <laughs> and I'm going to say that I don't know of any investigator, including myself, that hasn't chased many leads as a result of psychics. When I run out of leads, how could you not chase some of these? No stone unturned. And for experienced death investigators who, uh, I, for instance, had the the uh, responsibility of investigating cult crimes for many years. And uh, you can only dig up so many parking lots before you start to say, I just can't quite buy this. But there are cases left and right where psychics have been able to identify the location. So they have to be followed. But it's strange when when you receive an email like we did this weekend that said, go five paces from the big rock and this coordinate and dig three feet down and you're gonna find the body. Well, those become really challenging. And so when I saw this letter, I wondered if even it was attributed to someone like a psychic. It very well could have been a body. And for anyone that's gone out into the woods to find the wallet that they dropped while they were hiking, finding a piece of evidence in a big area like these areas are is next to impossible, even when you know where you're gonna go look.
0: As we're saying, there are all these different murders, these bodies found in different situations. Now, another kind of high-profile killing, I guess, was the Mackay sisters. What can you tell us about that?
1: So, in comparison to Tony Jones, who disappears, in that case, we have to look at with an entirely different set of lenses. Now we have someone like the Mackay sisters. And this little uh, Judith and Susan are uh, either going to school or returning from it. The last place they're seen is it a bus stop in Townsville. Well, they're later found just off of the Flinders Highway in in the Antill Creek area. And one of the children had been sexually assaulted. One of the children had been stabbed and the other one had been strangled. Now, clearly in this case, sexual assault was part of the motivation for that killer. Much different than this 20-year-old boy. So think about the mentality and the psyche of a serial killer. A serial killer, sometimes it's about numbers, but those would be more the kind of the mass murderers than a serial killer. Serial killers are very specific. They're driven by fantasy. And if they were looking at someone like Tony Jones, I don't See that it would be probable that that would be the same person looking at little children and sexually assaulting them. It just doesn't fit the way they do business.
0: It's almost like serial killers tell themselves a story, right? Like they get themselves into the narrative of this, this is what I do, and they're then sort of enacting the same thing again and again. And as you said, perfecting how they do it.
1: Absolutely. Yeah. It is so polar opposite between Jones and the Mackay children that it makes me think these are individual episodes, individual predators. Tony Jones may not even be a predator. It could just be that it was an accident that happened alongside the Flinders Highway. But the investigators theorize that these children may have tried to run away Again, it's it's more probable that the suspect focused on one and had to get rid of the other, uh, in my opinion. But the thing that was so strange was I read about the school uniforms being folded neatly and tucked away in their school bags and their, their little straw hats and shoes and their socks folded all tucked inside. Well, th- that's really compelling stuff to read. But I keep coming up with these big red flags that say, okay, but is that really important to the investigation? Was that normal behavior? Did the children fold their clothes that way at the end of the school day to ride uh, home in something more comfortable? I I don't know. It
0: could just be an absolute red herring, right?
1: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. What becomes more interesting is that there are reports of witnesses who see the girls in this blue vehicle with an adult male driver. And one witness later claims that the children, one of them looked like they had crying and they overhear one of the children saying are we there yet and when are you going to take us to mummy and that really tells us a lot about what may have been the guise that was used to get those children to come in into the vehicle with him oh your mom just told me to pick you up here at the bus stop because she's at the hospital or something like that and so we start to really see things that tell us about the character of the offender and the method and and modus that they use in order to gain control of those children. Does that make sense?
0: Yeah, it absolutely does. And then I think, you know, when I was reading about all these different crimes, and as you say, you know, some of them could be the same bucket, but they're quite disparate and over a very long period of time. So it doesn't sound like a serial killer. So then what is interesting, is there something about a highway, and we can loop this back to the truck stop killer as well, is there something about a highway that... I guess, brings together the victim and the predator at the right time. I mean, people are on the move. They might be vulnerable. Maybe, you know, it is younger people who tend to be moving around a lot more. So is there something about a highway that helps them meet in a very unfortunate way?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think there are a couple of really important things that come to mind from my perspective. And the first is, is the highway just a vehicle to get where the predator can safely commit the crime in the case of a sexual assault? Is it merely just an avenue to get him away from an urban setting and a lot of people to the countryside where he can have more anonymity or more privacy? and commit the crime. He wants to be successful. Now he's not picking it because it's not familiar to him. So the highway also teaches us a lot about the offender and the site in which these victims are disposed teaches us a lot because they're not going to go somewhere that they're unfamiliar with or they're fearful that they might get caught. They're like any other predator. They're going to work in a way that helps them be successful. So we have to think about that. We have to think about, is it just functional? That this is a predator that is a route driver A road like the Flinders Highway could merely be just an avenue to move from one spot to another on a regular basis, a traveling salesman that every Thursday has to make a run to a certain location. And so it could be functional and fundamentally the only way that they would go. And so they would have to pick up a victim and then drop them somewhere along the road. So that's where we start to see these things tie together so as i look in totality at all these cases i have to start saying the cases that originate over in the townsville area seem to go shorter distances the cases that originate in mount isa seem to go longer distances why is that and so we start to examine behavior and movement and uh, other kinds of things now we have one victim who was hitchhiking from melbourne and coming up the one thing that's very clear is the victim assumes a very high risk position by hitchhiking across such a broad spanse of ground. I
0: think that's a very good take home. Hitchhiking, not such a good idea. And of course, you know, if we're not blaming victims, and yet you would talk about, oh, what's that word for like, you know, where you sit on the spectrum of victimhood?
1: We we call it the victim risk continuum. And it is such an important thing to constantly remind ourselves, are the decisions that we're making increasing or decreasing my risk of being victimized and deciding I am going to save the $20 bus fare and hitchhike is a decision that increases one's risk.
0: Very well put. Now, I feel like there was this real aha moment when you were talking about the truck stop killer and how once you inputted all that data, the pattern just emerged like one of those magic eye pictures, you know. And that made me wonder, in Australia, obviously, lots and lots of highways, would it be worth doing almost like a fishing expedition of just mapping all the unsolved murders and missing people cases across the map of Australia and try and see whether there are particular clusters or patterns that you can draw out of it?
1: Absolutely. And I think not only just look for those clusters of numbers, but look at it based on population so that you really see, hey, there are two people per thousand that disappear every month in this community. Well, it may be that there is a much smaller community where there are four people That are disappearing per thousand population. And so we have to start using GIS and analytics to look at the information and actually make it understandable and usable. If I were to look at the United States, for instance, we average over 800,000 missing people every year. Now, 87% of those roughly return home, but that means 104,000 people are never heard from again in our country. I would suspect that your country is very much the same in those numbers. Maybe not the 104, maybe not the 800, but those proportions would be very much the same.
0: And that's about us done for today. So thank you to today's sponsor, Esri Australia, whose mapping solutions help public safety agencies across the country predict and fight crime, track the crims and keep us safe. Uh, You can get a free trial of their software at mappingevil.com.au.
1: Well, you're a natural, Tori, and I I just really enjoy exploring these with you, and I think that your insight is very representative of most people's insight. The problem is, we sometimes fail to follow our insight and our promptings, and uh, we decide we know a little more than our gut's telling us, and, and so folks, please... Just keep thinking, am I increasing my risk or decreasing my risk in the decisions that I make? And I can't wait to see you again, Tori. Words
0: of wisdom, Mike. I'll see you next time. If you've found the content covered in this podcast distressing, support is available from Lifeline on 13 11 14. And if you have information about any unsolved crime, please contact Crimestoppers on 1800 triple3 333 0 or go to crimestoppers.com.au. This is a Baustead Geospatial Technologies production. This episode was narrated by me, Tori Shepard and Mike King. Sound engineering by Fig Media with editing support from Kim Douglas, Gabby Patterson, Circa 3 and Podbooth Studios. Artwork by Superscript and our executive producers are Raquel Jackson and Alicia Kuperitsis. And finally, this production would not be possible without the support of Esri Australia.